A very pleasant good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight, and we've got a special show for you this evening as we've got a couple of things going on on tonight's show. First of all, we have got a very special guest coming on this evening, Kim Nuxhall from the Joe Nuxhall Miracle League and Miracle Fields down in Fairfield, Ohio, will be our guest coming up in about 20 minutes. We'll talk to him about that. And also, of course, my co-host and resident Reds expert from down south, Mark Donahue, will be giving you a preview and a his rendition of his book, Last at Bat, as we get into the new crowdfunding agenda that is going on with his book. That's coming up in the last half hour of tonight's show. So, in order to do that, let's go down south and find out what's happening. Mark, how are you tonight? Well, I'm pretty good, David. I've uh, overcome my summer of glum, where I look forward to baseball all winter, as you do, <laughs> and then to have the team perform so poorly. You can't wait for the season to be over, so you can start looking forward to 2015, but we'll get into that a little later. Mark, how would which would you rather do? I guess this is, you know, would you rather get blown out in a game or would you rather play it close and, and lose at the end? I mean, here we are. The Reds are out of it totally, and, and they've been out of it for probably since uh, the beginning of August. But then you look at the Indians, and they are staggering down to the end of the line. After they won the suspended game earlier tonight, they're now two and a half games out of the wild card chase. They really have to win their last seven games that they've got going in the, in the regular season. <clears throat> so which would which would you rather have, Mark? Be out of it the the beginning of August, early August, or take it all the way down to the end and then be eliminated? Well, if you're going to be eliminated, I guess it doesn't matter. But uh, maybe that's a false choice because if you're right now, the Indians have a chance. Uh, they don't have to win 10 in a row. They have to win seven in a row, and now six in a row. So every game they win, it becomes more likely or possible that they could you know, win out. And I don't even think they have to win out, but they have to win the vast majority of their games. So, no, I think the Indians are providing Indian fans some excitement the last week of the season. But as you said, the Reds have been out of this effectively since the middle of August and have not had any chance to win. Everybody knows it. And uh, while the Indians may not make it, it certainly is indicative that, that maybe they're a player away. The Reds are a lot more than a player away to, to be to be competitive. So, Mark, you're taking the Jim Carrey attitude from Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance? <laughs> One of the great lines in all movies. <laughs> <laughs> it was. You know, the Indians right now, though, uh, in this game against Kansas City, if they could sweep this series, Mark, I think the uh, pennant fever would come alive in Cleveland. But right now, Danny Duffy is throwing a gem against the Indians. They had the opportunity to get to him in the bottom of the first and didn't. And right now in the bottom of the sixth, the Indians are down 2 nothing to Danny Duffy and the Kansas City Royals. But Mike Avillis with two outs just got a two-out base hit. And like I said... The Indians are two and a half games behind Kansas City right now, not only for second place in the Central, but in the wild card chase. They're three games behind Oakland, who has the top spot in that wild card space. The Indians are 82-74. and No chance in the world that they're going to match last year's record. 
But I got to say, Mark, when this team plays good defense, they win ball games. They went six and two last week, and the reason they went six and two is because they have committed just five errors in the last fourteen games. Sure, they're dead last in the major leagues in errors because of everything they've done before. But as we get into September, they've shored up the defense, and here we go again. Well, defense is tied to good pitching, as you know. And as we were talking before the uh, the broadcast, uh, the frustrating thing about being close, as the Indians are going to be, no matter what happens, the Indians are going to be close. You wonder what could have been had they added that, that singular bat that you and I both said they needed. Uh, could could they have gone out there and gotten that one player that would have made a difference in two or three or four games because that would have made a huge difference. Uh, at, at this point, in retrospect, no matter who the Reds would have brought in, it wouldn't have been – they could have brought in uh, Matt Kemp or anybody you name, and it wouldn't have made a difference. Uh, they're, they're, what, 13 and a half, 14 games behind. But the Indians, they're going to be close. And that's that's the frustrating part when you think, could management – have done more for Francona to give him some more ammunition to make this team a winner. Well, pretty much, like I said, what the Indians have to do is they need to win out. They've got to sweep the Royals and basically root for the Angels to beat uh, Seattle in a three-game series coming up later on this week. There's a lot of things that we're going to get into uh, later on in tonight's show. But, Mark, we've talked most of the summer about Walt Jockety's inability to put together a team that can hit in Cincinnati. And the Reds have kept him and kept him and kept him. Today, Atlanta was proactive as far as they're concerned with their GM, and they fired Frank Wren. He's been the GM since 2006, and in the 20 years prior to Wren taking over as GM, they had won 19 divisional titles, and one World Series. Wren comes in, and in 2006, they had won one division title and had missed the playoffs four times. Atlanta, that's not good enough for them. Frank Wren is out, and former Tribe GM John Hart is in. First of all, are you surprised at what Atlanta did today? No, I'm not. I mean, you hit it on the head. Atlanta's used to winning. They have a big payroll. They've made some mistakes in some of the people they've signed. Uh, and, but having said that, what I don't understand is how a team can lose their virtually their entire pitching staff <laughs> at the beginning of the year, where they have what three guys undergo Tommy John this year, uh, and still be competitive, and then the GM gets fired. So I, I'm I'm not surprised from the perspective of Atlanta being a big money market team and not winning. I understand that you got to produce, but at the same time, when you lose your your almost your entire pitching staff, and you go out there and get Harang, who actually has a good year this year to save you, and some other guys they picked up off the junkie, and to keep that team afloat, I thought the GM did a pretty good job. So that does surprise me. Well, I'm surprised, Mark, that nobody after the Texas debacle that John Hart was involved in after he left the Indians that nobody had given John Hart the opportunity to be a GM up until now with Atlanta. Now, he has said he would not turn the job down if it was offered to him. Right now, he's technically 
the interim GM. He, Bobby Cox, and the ownership are going to help organize a search for the new GM of Atlanta. But let's say John Hart is the manager. Do you think, or is the general manager, I should say, do you think that this is going to have any effect on Freddy Gonzalez as manager? Well, yeah, it will have certainly some effect on him, but I think he did a good job this year, uh, you know, based on the fact that he lost all the, all that pitching, but they didn't get him any bats. I mean, you take Freddie Freeman out of that lineup, and you, you have a very mediocre, if not poor, hitting team, and you've got to back him up, just like the Reds needed to back up Joey Votto, and it didn't happen. But don't forget, offense around baseball is down considerably this year, and maybe it's because of the the steroids not being used. I, I, maybe the pitchers are just better than they were. They're stronger. They throw harder. You have better bullpens. All those things can play into it. But baseball over the last three or four years has changed dramatically. A lot of times you had you had scores of eight to seven, nine to eight, six to five, and now almost every score is three to two, two to one, one to nothing, and that puts a lot of strain on your bullpen and. I don't know the answer other than the most, you know, Occam's razor. The most logical answer is is usually the answer, and it's because of steroids. I, I don't know how else you could look at the situation and say it's anything else but that. So the pitchers apparently were not impacted by steroids as, as much as the hitters were, and yet uh, I, I'm trying to, to grasp what else could be the explanation for this huge drop-off in offense in Major League Baseball this year. Mark, again, I find it amazing that nobody has given John Hart an opportunity. I always thought that he was a great general manager as, as with the Cleveland Indians. And then when he went to Texas after leaving Cleveland in the 2001 season, of course, Texas was still reeling from, and I know this is going to be politically incorrect, but the George Bush years where he practically ran the team into bankruptcy and they were still trying to dig them, their, themselves out of that until Nolan Ryan and his group took them over and they brought in Ron Washington and, and John Hart was one of the guys that they let go. But I was really surprised because John Hart was the architect of that Indians ball club, Mark, that really kind of transcribed the way baseball was going to go into the future by signing the young kids when they were still eligible for arbitration and signing them to long-term medium contracts, not outlandish contracts, but medium contracts to where they would stay and they could build a team. And that is really the blueprint that a lot of teams are using now. And I'm surprised that John Hart hasn't had the opportunity to be a GM with anybody else since then. I wonder if the A-Rod situation with John Hart um impacted that. I mean, I know he didn't, um, he wasn't the architect of that necessarily. It was the ownership that got involved with that. But, you know, you mentioned John Hart, and I don't know how old he is, but I, I would say he's, what, in the 60s? Is it? Yes. Okay. Jockety is in his late 60s. Uh, there's a lot of GMs out there that, that are the old guard, and I just wonder how much of an audience those guys are going to get. If, if Jockety were to leave the Reds, I can't imagine anybody in baseball hiring him. And the reason is, he is he, he's two generations away from the guys that are running major league teams in Chicago and other places in Boston. 
they're young guys, MBAs, smart guys who know sabermetrics. They they believe in it, and I, I think I think it's a different era. And in answer to your question, it may be that John Hart has been passed by because he does not fit the new mold of these young, uh, aggressive GMs who, who really know their stuff. And that may may very well be the case. I, I know he did an outstanding job in Cleveland, subpart job in Texas, and he's been working for Major League Baseball Network pretty much ever since. A couple things about the Indians before we get into the Reds here, before we bring on Kim Nuxhall, our guest here tonight. Uh, Corey Kluber, Mark, on Sunday pitched his second consecutive game with 14 strikeouts. Now, the Alliance Sports Bureau, which is the statistician's dream for Major League Baseball, reports that that performance by Kluber, his 13-inning streak of two-plus strikeouts per inning was the longest streak since May 8th and 13th, 2001, by none other than Randy Johnson. Now, when would you ever think that Corey Kluber would be used in the same breath with Randy Johnson? So I pitched in Cincinnati against the Reds, or in, I forget whether it was Cleveland or Cincinnati, but he was, he, he was overpowering that night. And, but then the last two times he's been out, he's been virtually unhittable. And I, I didn't know if you knew what has been the difference. Has it been pitching coach? Has it been his his training? You know, what's the answer? Because this guy, I mean, he, he's pitching with uh, the best of the best right now. I think it's just the maturity factor that he has finally learned how to pitch. And the thing that, that I've heard hitters say, Mark, that makes him so difficult is the fact that Every pitch, no matter what it is, the fastball, the curveball, the slider, or the changeup that he throws, every pitch comes out of his hand exactly the same way. In other words, his release point never changes, and you cannot get a gauge on what pitch is coming to you until it's right on top of you. And they say that is what makes him so difficult. They can't tell what pitch is coming until right at the last second. And the fact is... Nothing rattles this guy. To me, he looks like Chuck Norris out on the mound, especially when he's got that beard. Just nothing ever bothers him. And he just goes out there, does his job, pitches pitch after pitch, and his goal is always three pitches per batter. And if that's a strikeout, fine. But he wants to get an out in three pitches to every batter. He thinks that puts him into the ball game, into the eighth or ninth inning. You know, his, his persona on the mound reminded me of Jack Morris. You know, that real intense guy, right-hander, burly, uh, and, and throws. Their, their motions aren't all that alike, but the way they approach the hitter is so aggressive, you know, pitching to contact. But then the hitters know that, and the hitters become aggressive, and they start going after things they shouldn't go after. But, you know, you right now, I don't know who would you would rather have if you had to start – the World Series, Game 1, who would you rather have in the American League than him? Um, you know, a lot of people have compared him to Felix Hernandez in Seattle. And when you look at the stats compared between him and Hernandez, actually Kluber's having a better year. But to answer your question, who would I rather have to start Game 1 in a series? Boy, it, it, that's a tough one. Because I'm a big fan of Jared Weaver, 
out with the Angels. I'm also, you know, Max Scherzer is a tough ace with Detroit because he just never gives in to anybody. But it would be tough for me to pick between those four, Hernandez, Kluber, Scherzer, or Weaver. But I can tell you right now, the way it's set up, if the Indians do make that one-game playoff next week, Kluber is not going to be able to pitch it because Kluber's, uh, Kluber's next start is going to be on Friday. So he will not be able to start that playoff game on Tuesday. Well, again, we're, we're talking about something we hope happens with Indians. If the Reds aren't in it, I'm glad the Indians are still making some noise in the playoffs. And uh, I, I think the Indians, again, as we go into 2015, uh, the Indians are, if you could add one more guy to your rotation, I mean, maybe a number two or three to your rotation, and then pick up a stick. Uh, the Indians could be, you know, I think Detroit's run's about done in terms of their age, and uh, they might lose a free agent this year off the pitching staff. So who knows? I mean, I think the, the Indians right now are much better set up in their organization than the Reds are. Mark, Matt Latos for the Reds, not slated to pitch again for the season. He's got a bruised elbow. They've already shut down uh, Mike Leak, but yet there's still talk that Joey Votto is going to play again this year. Why even bother? Well, you're preaching to the choir here. I think that's the most ridiculous thing I've heard. And I would hate to think that the other reason they're doing this is they can bring some more fans into the stands for the last six games at home. Uh, that, that would really be disappointing to me that they would do that. Uh, it, it might work. But why are you risking a $213 million investment that you have in him over the next nine years? Uh, it makes no sense at all. No one is going to convince me economically or any other reason that it makes any sense to have Joey Votto out there risking injury at this time of the year. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. He's been on the DL since July 8th, and we talked about this last week. I mean, the weather is starting to get a little colder. It's got to be colder, uh, not probably as cold up here as it is down in Cincinnati, but still it's turning colder. And for him to be out there with a quad muscle that is giving him trouble and trying to play and run the bases in cold weather, I think it, it, it's nuts. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, obviously, every every injury is different. He doesn't know about it. But he said quad injuries are like hamstring injuries. They can reoccur. And they reoccur because you have a weakness there. And if you don't, you know, strengthen really the, the, the front part of your leg uh, and the back part of your leg, you're, you're going you're gonna to pull your hamstring on a regular basis. Same with a quad. And I would hate to think that he is prone to this kind of injury that is going to come up every year. And I don't know if surgery is the kind of thing that can, can, can fix it. But if they're concerned about that quad now and surgery is something that he should have, why didn't they have it in July? So he's ready for next year. Why do you let him go through all this stuff to the end of the year to find out that uh, he's going to need surgery in December. Then he's out for 2015. You know, nobody knows because the Reds have taken the position that they don't want to talk about it. Uh, They don't want to bring up the risk. But uh, this this situation could be a huge issue with the Reds for the next nine years with Joey Votto and that contract. And that doesn't make any sense. Why don't they want to talk about it, Mark? 
Well, in fairness, I, I think they need the players' permission to talk about it because the players' union put into the, to, to the collective bargaining agreement that uh, teams were not supposed to talk about a player's injury. And like Matt Latos. Matt Latos is 5-5 five and five this year. He was injured twice at the beginning of the year. And, you know, he's coming up to, his, to a contract year. And what is that going to do to him in terms of his value, either for the Reds to, dra- to trade or if the Reds try to negotiate a deal, he's going to have to prove he can pitch again. Because he, he didn't prove it this year, that's for sure. No, you're absolutely right. Well, hey, you know, last week, Mark, we talked about uh, the article that I found on the Internet about the Joe Nuxhall Miracle League and Miracle Fields. And I, I reached out to Tara Stroud to see if we could, could get her, and she recommended that we speak with Joe Nuxhall's son, Kim Nuxhall. And Kim Nuxhall joins us here tonight. Kim, if, if you don't mind, do, do you mind if I call you, Kim? Good evening. Yes, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? Thanks for joining us on tonight's well, Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. My co-host is Mark Donahue. And, Kim, it's a pleasure having you on tonight's show. We wanted to have you on to talk about this Miracle League and the Miracle Fields. I saw the article on it just about a week ago, and I fell in love with the entire idea. Tell me, how, how did this idea germinate, and, and whose idea originally was it? Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's probably 10 years ago. I was watching HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumble and uh, saw a segment on on the story. A uh, lady uh, had, a, had a daughter with brittle bone disease uh, in a little town outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and they got this uh, simple but brilliant idea to, to build uh, a ball field out of rubber to serve kids in wheelchairs and walkers and other disabilities. And... Uh, it was kind of at that moment I thought somehow, some way, some day, uh, by golly, we're going to do this. And uh, about almost ten years later, we we got it done. We uh, opened it up in 2012, and uh, it's just been a, a really a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. Uh, Kim, I saw the video that's on the website, which is org. Remember that. That's .org for everybody that wants to look. You've got to see this video. It's about five minutes long. It's just outstanding. I don't know whoever did this, but, you know, it actually brought tears to my eyes just watching some of these kids get out there and play baseball. And it, it has to really warm a lot of hearts for kids to be able to, to get out there and do that. Well, you know, it, it, uh, I tell everybody every week is a new story. And, uh, you know, we have uh, kids and families coming out and for some in some cases the first time ever uh playing ball and uh you know we uh, we want to make it special for them and uh, we feel our field is unlike any of the other probably near 300 miracle leagues now in the world uh we have two fields we have um, uh, stadium seating just like great american ballpark we wanted our parents to to be uh comfortable while watching their kids and one of the outstanding features is we have uh a nine foot by fifteen foot LED board, so we're able to put the kids' image up on that board, and uh, I'll tell you to see the smiles uh, on their faces. It makes it, it makes it worthwhile each and each and every week. It's it's a special place to be, and we, uh, you know, it's all about making memories and creating a positive experience for the kids. Hey, Ken, this is Mark Donahue. I I, I did see the video, and congratulations. Uh, this is one of the great ideas I've heard about for a while in terms of 
getting kids with those kinds of disabilities into the game. It's got to be a personal satisfaction to you to be part of this thing. How do you see this evolving over the next uh, several years? What, what are your short-term and long-term goals to perpetuate this particular field, but also perhaps expand this idea other places? Well, uh, in the short term, it's, it's growing our leagues. Uh, right now, uh, Mark, we have ages 5 to 70 years old playing, so uh, probably 200 or so uh, kids and adults playing. So we hope to uh, to expand that. Uh, you know, it, it would certainly make us proud to, to, to have games played every single night down there. To, that's why we built it. Uh, so that's on the short term. On the long term, we have we actually have another big dream. We actually want to build a gymnasium, so it will be a, a year-round facility, and we want that to be uh, kind of the home of the of the Butler County Special Olympics. And certainly, our kids will be able to, in the Miracle League, will be able to do some things in the winter. So, um, yeah, it's uh, something uh, you know we want to continue to grow. And uh, I tell people our doors are open to anyone and everyone. We've had uh, kids from Kentucky, Indiana playing, and uh, if they want to come from further than that to, to come down and play ball, like I said, our doors are open to, to everyone. You know, the one thing that I saw in the video, Kim, was this mechanical bat where kids that aren't able to actually swing the bat can actually work this mechanical bat. Okay. Tell, tell us how that works. Oh, uh, wow. That, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that was an amazing thing. We had hosted a state challenger league, which challenger league is basically Miracle League associated with uh, Little League Baseball. and There was a gentleman from Cleveland. He was a mechanical engineer, and he built this automatic bat for his daughter. Uh, she wasn't able to actually hold a bat. So uh, we saw it for the first time last year and met him, and he came down, and we met with an organization called May We Help. It's a group of engineers, from uh, mainly from General Electric, and they built us an automatic bat. And... I'll tell you, the first time uh, we saw that in use, you know, we had a, a player came up and they were had limited use of their hands, but they were able to press a button and it activates the bat and hits the ball off the tee for them. We even have a mechanism now where if uh, they were not able to use their hands or, or legs, they're um, able to actually blow in a straw and it activates it. So you can imagine, you know, put yourself... Uh, and those parents and that person's uh, shoes, so to speak, uh, what that feeling must be to, you know, for most of their life, they never even could even dream of, of, of being on a ball field to make that happen for them. Uh, it, it's special, no doubt about it. How did you work, Kim, to get the contributors to build this field? How, how did yeah, that happen? I, I tell people that that's a story in itself. It, it really is. We we kind of dredged along for, gosh, five years trying to raise the money, and we were well short, uh, and we were actually thinking about cutting back. Uh, you know, our, our, our complex has two fields. We thought, well, maybe we should just build one. Maybe we should eliminate the concession stand. And Along came uh, one of my high school football buddies. I ran into him, and uh, he happened to do uh, a lot of concrete work, and uh, we call it the Bound Train. Uh, Cliff Bounds his name, and once uh, we met with Cliff, uh, other high school uh, buddies of mine, another high school football buddy with the IBW, and it just went from there. Uh, it, um, like I said, that story alone is, is I still shake my head at. Our, our facility is. 
uh, about a $3 million facility, and $2.5 million was donated in terms of uh, labor and materials. And, you know, during that time, uh, the economy wasn't great still, and uh, people uh, marvel at it, and I do myself. I, I really do shake my head, and, and that's the neat thing about this is the community coming together. And I think the story there is, you know, with, uh, with all the stuff, the negative stuff on the news, uh, when you come down and see this facility, you realize there re- there really are great people in the world still doing good things. Hey, Kim, in terms of I've lived outside of uh, Cincinnati for a while, the Cincinnati-Dayton area, but uh, back here now for a number of years. And I, I'm amazed that when you look at Cincinnati, what your project has done, what Joe Morgan's project has done down in Cincinnati. Is that in Hamilton County, too? That's in Hamilton, Hamilton. County. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Hamilton County. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it appears that Cincinnati is taking a leadership role in a lot of these new projects. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that uh, Major League Baseball's first team uh, in 1869 was Cincinnati, and it seems to have grown from there. But uh, the number of players that this area turns into the major leagues and the interest of baseball, it's really remarkable considering that you don't hear these kinds of things from some of the bigger market teams. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's just, you know, it's a cultural thing. You know, baseball's the, you know, the fabric of this area, no doubt. And, uh, you know, I really have to, to, to shine the light on two people, Mr. Cassellini and, uh, Charlie Frank, the Reds executive, uh, director of the community fund. If, if it really wasn't for those two, you wouldn't be hearing about any of this. Uh, it is remarkable, their commitment and their passion. For, for impacting the community. I mean, they really, what I, I use the term, get it, and uh, reaching out to the fans. Uh, yeah, the Urban Academy that just opened up in Cincinnati is something everyone should see as well. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of good things. You know, no matter, you know, it wasn't the year we wanted for the Reds on the field, but uh, trust me, uh, there are great, great things happening off the field and will continue because of, of their leadership. We're talking with Kim Nuxall from the Joe Nuxall Miracle League and Miracle Fields. Kim, just a couple more questions. Um, Bob Castellini, the Reds' CEO, owner, uh, is basically putting on, uh, and other notables are going to attend the first annual Joe Nuxall Foundation Miracle Ball, which is Thursday, November 6th at Jungle Jim's Oscar Center, and they're going to honor Marty Brenneman. Uh, Tell us, Kim, what is the Joe Nuxall Foundation, is it going towards the fields, and how do people get tickets for that event? Yes, uh, that particular night, uh, you know, we've been uh, for the last two years probably averaging 20 small fundraisers, and if you've ever been in that in that uh, area, you know, it, it's daunting. Uh, we're mostly volunteers, so it's kind of wearing everybody down, so we thought let's focus on one big event, and we really hope this is the event in Butler County, yeah, we're uh, this is a fundraiser for the Miracle Miracle League, and uh, like you said, we, we're going to honor Marty. You know, Marty has 41 years in the booth and uh, 31 of it with Dad, so we thought that would be special. Uh, we're going to present him with uh, the Joe Nuxall Award of Excellence in Broadcasting, so it, it's going to be a special night. Uh, you mentioned Joe Morgan earlier. Unfortunately, Joe can't make it, but uh, I understand he's going to make us a nice video. Mr. Castellini's going to speak. Uh, uh, just uh, received a, a really uh, nice letter from um, from Dick Vitale uh, to read to Marty. So it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a special night, and uh, 
uh, we encourage people to come out, and it's a great way to support the Miracle League if they haven't already. But uh, tickets are going to be available on our website real soon. We're going to have it's a revamped uh, website. I think that'll be up and running next week, so they can get more information um, at the at the website or go on Facebook as well. Hey Ken, before we sign off, and, and, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. I do want to say something relative to your dad. Uh, back, I think it was 1988. I went to Red's Dream Week, and oh. your dad, your, your dad interviewed me as star of the game, just like they did. <laughs> cool. And I've got it on. Actually, have it on tape. I'll and, be darned. And it was so funny. They 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 did a a videotape of it, and but the funniest part of those things, as you may well know, is what happens when the camera goes off. Oh yeah. <laughs> Some you can talk about and some you can't. <laughs> Probably, yeah, most I can't. Yeah. <laughs> but your dad was so down to earth and such a cool guy. We sat around after the cameras were off, and we sat around with two or three other guys for probably two or three hours, drinking beer, just talking about baseball. And I, I assumed your dad was that way, but it's so nice when somebody you like for so long turns out to be just as nice and just as outgoing and down-to-earth as they could possibly be. And I'll always treasure that tape I've got. And uh, maybe I'll show it to you sometime, Dave. But, I'd uh, love to see it, yeah. You know, Dad, I, I tell people all the time, uh, Dad never believed he was a celebrity. He knew how fortunate he was. And uh, I think that's one of the, the neat things uh, still happening now, uh, uh after nearly seven years after his passing, the, the people, the stories like, you know, you just shared with me, it just tells me that they really understood how much Dad cared about them. And Dad did. He, he loved the fans. He knew it was the fans who made his made his career and was always appreciative of that. As you know, you, he would never turn down an autograph uh, from anyone. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, he... He lived a great life, you know. He made the most of his time, 60-plus years with the Reds, and uh, I am one very fortunate uh, son, trust me. The experiences I, I got as a young player, a young kid growing up, and even now, uh, I still, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very grateful and very humbled by that. Well, congratulations. You picked a cool dad. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can tell you also, Kim, Mark knows this story. I grew up in northwest Ohio. And I started out as a Cincinnati Reds fan, and my heroes were were Rose and Bench. But I grew up listening to Marty and Joe doing the games on my transistor radio with an earplug underneath my pillow every night growing up listening to those guys. I just, I loved listening to both of them, especially your dad. Oh, yeah, still still miss them, and that was a a great duo, you know. Uh, uh, I don't think there will probably never ever be another uh, pair like those two. But, uh, yeah, it gave us all a lot of special memories. I appreciate you sharing that. Kim, one final question. Sure. Uh, it's located at 4850 Grow, Grow Lane in Fairfield. The phone number is 513-829-6899. I'll give that before we get off the air here again tonight. But if somebody wants to bring a group down there, when are you guys open? How do they put together a group uh, uh, to get in, in there and, and play around? Yeah, our season uh, runs from uh, about the 1st of April, and we actually wrap it up. Uh, we have two more Saturdays of uh, of our fall youth league, so all the way into October, so all throughout the spring and summer and fall. So 
Uh, you mentioned Tara Stroud. They can contact Tara and set up. That's one of the great pieces uh, we're excited about, too, are the schools that come and visit uh, during the day. We have special needs classes from all over the area come and play on the field. So um, I appreciate you mentioning that. So, yeah, like I said, our doors are open to anyone, and uh, it's, a, it's a neat thing for me. Also, the location you mentioned, uh, we have corn growing around it, so it really is truly like a field of dreams. and. Just up the road is where Dad and, uh, and the neighborhood kids would load into the car, and Dad would hit his fly ball. So it's a special place for me, and I think people, when they come and visit it, uh, they'll feel the same way. Again, it's the Joe Nuxall Miracle League in Miracle Fields. It's located at 4850 Grow Lane, Fairfield, Ohio. And the phone number, if you want to take a group in there to contact Tara Stroud, area code 513-829-6899, 513 6899, and that website address is Kim Nuxall, thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate the time you've given us. Awesome, guys. The feeling's mutual. I appreciate it. Thank you. Come down and visit sometime. Thanks, Kim. We'll do that. All right. Take care. We'll see you. Bye. Thank you. Kim Nuxall, our guest here tonight. Mark, I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't sign off that interview this way. That's the son of the old left-hander, rounding third and heading for home. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, some of the stories. I actually met with Joe a couple times down there, and uh, he was just one of the guys. I mean, he, he didn't ma- didn't matter who you were. Uh, it, and matter of fact, you remember Bob Evans, the guy, you know Bob Evans' restaurant? Sure, sure. Big Woody Hayes supporter. Yeah, well, Bob Evans was probably 73 years old or something like that, and he attended Dream Week in Cincinnati. And Bob Evans and Joe Nuxall and Roy McMillan and I forget who else it was. We all went out to dinner one night, and it was one of the funniest dinners I could ever remember having. I mean, Joe and, and Bob Evans was a cool guy. He, and he Bob Evans had played baseball at OU and had been scouted by the Reds. And uh, he had some great baseball stories and knew Joe for years. So it was one of the one of those nights you just sit back and, and listen. You know, you hear these guys talk. But uh, Joe Nuxall was the real deal, and uh, he's sorely missed, believe me. Mark, I just have a single question for you. How are you not any fatter by with all the dinners that you've had with people throughout the years? Well, you know, when you're in business, and you 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 have the company credit card. <laughs> Dinners are are pretty easy to come by, but it, uh, it's better than food stamps, right? That's right. <laughs> and some people who may be listening tonight may be thinking I'm too fat anyway, so I better better cut back on the dinners. <laughs> I I I don't think that's the case. Hey, we got one question tonight on our Ask Us segment before we get into uh, the book and the crowdfunding agenda here this evening on Last and Bat. And, of course, you can send us in your questions to askus or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send me a tweet to ohbbcohost. We did have some other questions, but basically we've, we're have we running short of time here tonight, and we've answered most of them. But we do have one question here this evening, and that's from Marcus. And it says, why does it seem to take Francona so long to get the team to play urgent baseball? Well, Marcus, I don't know if I tend to agree with that statement, although I would say that the Indians, as a whole, they take on the persona 
of not only Shapiro and Antonetti, but also Francona. Francona never seems to get worried or urgent about anything. And the fact is, is that yes, it did take till the end of last year for the Indians to make the playoffs. It is taking to the end of this year to see if the Indians will make the playoffs. And we'll find out here in the next week if they do or not. But still in all, it's a heck of a lot better going into the last week of the season, knowing you have a shot at the playoffs, I think, than it is to spend the last two months like they did under the Manny Acta regime and most of the time under the Eric Wedge regime uh, not having a shot at the playoffs. Mark, your thoughts? Well, I can tell you what it's like to be a fan of a team not in the playoffs uh, as opposed to one that was in the playoffs last year. It really, you know, it puts a damper, frankly, in the whole summer, and you get mad every night when you see a team like the Reds perform. So kudos to the Indians, and I hope they're able to pull it off. Uh, I'd love to see an Ohio team in the playoffs. But, uh, again, I think the Indians are much closer to being competitive and, and maybe even have a chance for uh, the World Series than, than the Reds are. Well, and I called you Friday because I heard a rumor going around Cleveland that Francona may step down after this season. He's got two years left to go on his contract, and the reason he might step down is because he's got some back problems and sitting or standing in the dugout is getting to be a chore for him over 162 games, and it's starting to show its wear and tear on his back. My feeling is, Mark, if they're going to sell turnstiles from progressive field, let's take the profits and the money from those turnstiles and get a lazy boy chair that they can put up on stilts and put Francona in that chair so he can see over the fence, and that way he doesn't have to stand, and he can still manage this ball club. I, I wish it were that easy. I, I have a feeling it might be something else. You know, Francona, you know, it may be the point that he feels he has outgrown Cleveland. Uh, th this guy could be a, a big market manager. And I look around baseball, and, uh, you know, th there's going to be some openings coming up in the next couple of years. And if you're Francona, you know, you, you've got – your choice. Uh, if the Yankees don't win next year, who knows what's going to happen over there. Uh, the Dodgers, if they don't win this year, they better win this year. Uh, what's going to happen in L.A.? And those are the markets that a friend Kona could go, and he could really, really do well. Mark, okay, let, let's get into uh, your situation with the crowdfunding. Of course, a few years ago, you wrote a book called Last at Bat. And when we first started doing this show, four years ago, you sent me a copy of it, and like I told you then, uh, I, I've read it a couple of times since then, but I couldn't put it down over a two- to three-day period. Uh, I, re I read the book, loved it. Uh, of course, it's not just it, – it's based on a baseball player, but it's not just about baseball. There, there's a lot more to it. You're the author. You've talked about the book before, but it's going to be made into a movie, and there are some different circumstances that – you're getting into in order to raise funding for this movie, and one of them is called crowdfunding. So let me be the first to ask you, what is crowdfunding? Well, crowdfunding didn't start with, with movies. It started with uh, everything but movies, I guess. If you had a new invention or you came up with an idea that you needed some capital for, you could go to a, a group uh, called Kickstarter and they would raise anywhere from uh, $500 to uh, $5,000 for you to uh, get your idea off the ground. 
Well, it, it, it has grown. It has morphed into a huge business. And it's even, there's one now that focuses just on films called Indiegogo. And there's even several more iterations of that that are available. And basically what it is, rather than going to investors, you go to the public and you say, here's my idea. Here's my book. Here's my story. And I want to make a movie. But to do that, I can't raise money traditionally. I'm going to need your help. And what you do, basically, if you believe in a project, you could donate to that project anywhere from $25 or even less than that all the way up to $25,000. Now, in exchange for that, you get stuff. You might get access to the website. You might get a script. You might get a book, uh, a hat, a, in our case, baseball bats and, and balls and t baseball tickets, all these things, in exchange for someone's donation. And to put this in perspective, there was a film called uh, Veronica Mars, which was a TV series, which I never saw, by the way. But it was apparently very popular with young girls. And they decided to make a movie out of it. And they had a $2 million budget for the movie. And they raised $2 million in 42 minutes. And over the 30-day raise, they raised $6.2 million all through donations. And so what's happened is that you have now bigger budget films looking to this mechanism to raise capital. And what you do with the crowdfunding, it, it allows you to get your film off the ground, up and running. You can, you can get a cast, you can get a director, you can get sets, you can get locations. All these things uh, can be raised through crowdfunding. And these people who donate they get inside access to how the film is made. Uh, they're able to see through uh, Skype every day the filming of the movie. They get input on who the stars are, who the actors are going to be, all these things. So it's kind of a cool thing to be part of the inside, as it were, to how a movie is made. And for people who want to donate $25,000, they actually get a speaking role in the film in addition to all the other neat gifts that, that they get by don, no, donating that amount of money. So it's going to, Steven Spielberg said, no less than he, said that it is going to be the main way movies are financed uh, over the next 10 years. And uh, so we're going to attempt that, and it's, we're going to probably kick it off here in the next uh, 30 to 60 days, and it would be part and parcel of a, of a traditional uh, capital raise to, to make the movie. But our goal is to make the movie about the Reds, and to make it in Ohio. That's our goal. Uh, if we're not able to do it, we're not able to do it, but at least we're going to try. Well, Mark, another thing is is that your book came out in hard copy, and it's going to be coming out in paperwork, uh, paper, uh, paperback here very, very soon. Um, so it's going to be given a re-release. Re it's going to be available on the Internet. It's going to be available in, in different places. First of all, where is it going to be available at? And in order to get people interested in this, what we decided to do over the last few minutes of, of the remaining shows that we have is allow you to read a chapter or two every night and, and give us a synopsis of that. And then our very last show, after our regular show, will be just you and I talking uh, about the book itself. So, Mark, tell us when is it going to be re-released, where is it going to be available at, and let, let's get into hearing about Chapter 1. Well, it's going to be released September 30th, 
It's going to be released in five languages around the world. It'll be on Nook and Kindle. It'll be an audio version. Uh, we'll have the paperback and the hard copy. And uh, for, for those people who want to find out more about the book, they can go to our website or they can go to Lasted Bat or, or MarkRDonahue.com and learn about uh, what we're doing on the book. Uh, they can go to DRW2, that's DRW2 MediaGroup.com and actually see a trailer of the film that we have produced. So a lot of things happening and... Uh, uh, I'd like to start by reading about just a, a summary of the story, which you know so well, David, and to give people an idea of what the story is about, and then we'll move into some specific uh, chapters. Dylan Michael is the greatest player of his generation, maybe the best ever. Then he sleeps on, slips on a piece of ice and hurts his back. Trying to recover from his injury, he gets hooked on prescription drugs, loses track of his finances, and ends up sentenced to seven years in prison based on trumped-up drug and tax evasion charges. Things can't get worse. Then they do. When the jet that carries Dylan and 197 other passengers crashes, there are no survivors. Three years later, an older, unknown player named Matt Wolf explodes on the Major League Baseball scene and dominates the league. His face and body look nothing like Dylan's, but there is something about him that is familiar. It's his swing. The sweetest swing anyone can remember seeing since Dylan Michaels. Two rival baseball writers see that swing and smell a story that, if they can prove, will lead to a surefire Pulitzer. Dylan's beautiful ex-wife, Kara, doesn't see that swing but after a chance meeting with Matt at a Starbucks, tells her friends he had Dylan's eyes. They remind her, no survivors. From a baseball player, when we lose someone we love, we grieve, we mourn, we remember. But the pain never really goes away. I know. I've lost people I've loved. So to say losing the opportunity to play baseball is like losing a person sounds, well, all I can say is if you've never played the game, you won't understand. If you have, you will. It's that simple. Doesn't matter if you've played in your backyard or Yankee Stadium. Baseball players share things those who never played can't understand. It's the little things, like the smell of the grass or the varnish and pine tar from your bat or the addicting aroma of leather that requires every player to smell the pocket of their glove at least once each inning. Usually it's just a quick glove to the face move, but notice how they inhale each time they do that, and how the glove lingers near their face before the player moves it away. It's the feel of a bat in your hand, and the need to swing it in front of a mirror or window, or with the sun at your back, so your image or shadow can provide proof your swing is level and your weight is back. But it also just feels good to swing a bat and right. It's the irony of when you hit a ball hard, right on the screws, you can hardly feel it in your hands. And when you hit that ball hard, you know before anyone else in the world knows where that ball is headed, like a secret you share with yourself and your bat for just a millisecond. 
Some say baseball is slow. I say it's the people who say that who are the slow ones. They don't understand building tension or how a clock can never end the game or how great athletes from other sports can't hit a baseball. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because hitting a round ball coming at you at 100 miles an hour from only 60 feet away with a round bat is harder to do than anything else in sports. That's why when you're good at baseball and can't play, nothing can replace it. Nothing. I've heard people say, I was one of the best. Some even say, I was the best ever, but that's not for me to decide. All I know is, when you lose the game, you will do anything to get the game back, even if it's for only one last at bat, a ball player. Prologue, Cooperstown, New York. The sign on the door of the ivy-covered O'Reilly Stone House Tavern read, Closed. A graying man wearing a Dodgers baseball hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and wrinkled khaki pants decided the sign did not really mean close to him. He pounded on the thick wooden door. When that did not elicit a response, he pounded again. From inside, a voice said, We're closed till four o'clock. Come back then. That's three hours from now, the man on the outside said. I'm meeting some folks here later and have no place to go till then. Sorry, pal, no can do. I'll give you a $100 tip plus the cost of a bottle of your best scotch. The resulting silence from inside the tavern indicated someone was doing the math. Hold on a minute. A clunk on the door's lock was followed by it being opened six inches and the face of a young man in his mid-twenties peering between the door and the jam. You serious about that C-note, Pops? he asked. As a heart attack, the older man said, holding the hundred-dollar bill up to the cracked door. Hey, Pops, you can't say anything about this to anybody. Why would I want to do that? All right, come on in. The man in the Dodgers hat smiled as he entered the cool, dark bar. It had the essential aroma of an old tavern. It smelled like spilled, stale beer was forever embedded in its wooden floors, mahogany tables, chairs, and stained bar. He figured there was even beer in the ceiling. Slapping the hundred on the table, the older man said, Glenn Livet Neat and turn on ESPN, if you don't mind. Picking up the remote, the young man said, Don't mind at all. You want to watch the Hall of Fame induction? Yes, I do, the old man said. You a big baseball fan there, Pops? First of all, I am not, thank God, your Pops, nor what I want to be. Secondly, I am a baseball fan of sorts and would like to sit here quietly, sip my scotch, and watch the induction ceremonies. Any problem with that? Nope. You paid the fare. On the wall-mounted flat screen, the year's lone inductee into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame was being interviewed by several reporters prior to the commencement of the ceremony. Video replays showed highlights of the player's illustrious career. There was a seemingly never-ending stream of home plate celebrations, teammates pounding his back in elation after yet another game-winning hit or defensive play. There were scenes of locker room craziness immediately after a game and the fans in the stands waving red and white banners. The young bartender washing glasses in the sink behind the bar said, They're saying he was the best of all time. You buy that, mister? 
How would I know? You think I've seen every damn ball player since 1869? Well, all my friends and I think he was the best ever, and the numbers don't lie. You really think one of those guys from the old days was better than Matt Wolf? he asked. Numbers do lie, kid. In fact, they lie like hell, he replied. So, who was better? For a split second, a smile flickered across the old man's face. Then he remembered and began to speak. Think we'll end it there, David. Okay. So the book will be re-released on September 30th, and we will pick up from that point on next week, Mark. Sounds great. I appreciate it. No problem. So what do the Reds have coming up to end the regular season? Of course, the regular season ends on Saturday or on Sunday, Mark. It's hard to believe, but it's almost over. It's almost over, and the Reds can have some impact. Um, they beat St. Louis last night uh, after breaking a six-game losing streak. They've got three games against Milwaukee starting tomorrow night and then three games against the Pirates over the weekend, and the Reds could have a say on who goes to the playoffs and who doesn't. Well, the sad thing is about the Indians, they're going to the ninth inning, and they are down to Kansas City still, two to nothing. But they will play Kansas City again twice more tomorrow night and Wednesday. They are off Thursday, and then they finish up the regular season mark against Tampa Bay Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. So hopefully next Monday night when we get back together, we'll be talking about the Indians in the playoffs, and we'll be talking about the Reds making plans for next season. Unfortunately, you're right, David. <laughs> okay, so we'll be back next week. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, David. appreciate it. Don't forget, coming up this Thursday night, the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. We'll be on at 7 o'clock. We'll be talking about everything in the world of sports. And then again next Monday night, it'll be the end of the regular season edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark and I will be back at 9 o'clock next Monday night to let you know what's happening with the Reds and if the Indians have made it to the playoffs. Until then, that's going to do it. Our thanks to Kim Nuxall for being our guest tonight from the Joe Nuxall Miracle League and Miracle Fields in Fairfield, Ohio. And also our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer tonight. Our thanks to those who sent in their questions for our Ask Us segment, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock, I'm Dave Mitchell for Mark Donahue. Good night, everybody.